Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Sandy McGuire. Based in Ottawa, Sandy is a software engineer who describes himself as being somewhere between an independent researcher and a voluntarily unemployed bum. After a brief but lucrative career working for big companies like Google and Facebook, Sandy decided to leave the corporate world and focus his time on his own work and projects. Sandy is the author of the LeanPub book, Thinking with Types, Type-Level Programming in Haskell. The book is aimed at being the comprehensive manual for type-level programming, and we'll be talking about that in a little bit. You can follow Sandy's blog about Haskell at reasonablypolymorphic.com, and you can read more about Sandy himself and his experimental lifestyle project at sandymcguire.me. In this interview, we're going to talk about Sandy's background and career, professional interests, his decision at the age of 27 to stop working for the man, uh, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience being a self-published writer. So thank you, Sandy, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, yours is pretty interesting. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself studying software engineering at the University yeah, of Waterloo. For sure. Um, so I'm from uh, northern Canada originally, about 19 hours north of Vancouver, a little place called um, Terrace, BC. It's maybe 8,000 people if you're kind of generous and um, the nearest city is about 600 kilometers away. And so, as you can imagine, it's, um, it's, it's sort of up there and it's pretty, um, but there's not a lot to do if you're not all that into the outdoors. Um, and so I, I never really felt like I fit in um, just because, you know, there, if, if you like to go on the mountains, and it's nice, but if you want to stay in and work on computers and, you know, talk to people at math, there's not a lot to do. Um, so when I was... Um, 19, I decided I should probably get up and go to university. Um, and I sort of looked for the p- furthest away place I could be, which turned out to be the University of Waterloo. Um, went down there to study software engineering, uh, spent five years doing that, and um, I guess the rest is history, as they say. And you, uh, you've, you've written quite a bit about your own life on your blog, and I had fun preparing for this interview or you reading about some of your adventures. Um, you took a year off uh, after high school, before going to university, uh, what motivated you to do that or to try that out? Yeah, um, I had a cousin who is sort of my like adventurous avatar, I guess. Um, she was five years older than me. It was sort of the big sister I never had. Uh, and so when she graduated, she went off to Australia for a year and came back and told me a bunch of fantastic stories about that. Um, sort of at the same time, I watched the movie Into the Wild, and that really resonated with me as an impressionable teenager. Uh, which is sort of about, you know, getting up and running away and sort of giving, maybe not taking so much stoke in, um, in society, uh, if that makes sense. And so I, uh, I took a, a year off high school just to go sort of do that to just, I got in my car and I drove North one day and I, um, sort of just wanted to see what the rest of the world was like outside of my little hometown. Yeah, and uh, I've got a couple of questions about that. I mean, I've worked in sort of the semi-north um, tree planting in BC. Yeah, I made it a couple hours north of Fort St. John. Okay. Um, uh, anyone listening to this can just you know Google that uh, <laughs> maps to see how, how remote that is. But where you grew up was was very remote. Um, did you did you have you know good internet and stuff like that up there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we had infrastructure and schooling, and uh, we had internet and an airplane, um, an airport even. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's what I describe as a town. It's not, you know, it's not a village. There are people and, um, you can get out, but that being said, like, I'd say most people only really left maybe once a year. And that was to go down to Vancouver, um, for a week. And so it was, it was pretty insular. And did you find, uh, 
online communities where you could, uh, you know, find like-minded people? Yeah, I did. Um, I was really into StarCraft at the time, and I think that's what motivated a lot of my, my programming at an early age was um, there was a website called Camelot Systems where sort of a bunch of people had reverse engineered most of StarCraft and had made tools for sort of doing it yourself. Um, and so I think a lot of my early um, interesting computers and skills towards that came from interacting with those kinds of people. And uh, was was a computer always a part of your household? I'm sorry, I'm sorry if that's a personal question, but actually, a lot of the people I've interviewed on this, I've interviewed people who are you know born in like 1930 all the right. way to you know the 90s, and so you know the story of how a computer came into the house is actually kind of a really important thing for a lot of people <laughs> in there. How they got into tech in the first place. Absolutely, um, my father is a technical guy. Um, he's sort of an engineer without the qualifications, I guess you'd say. Um, and so he um, sort of grew up around the, the telephone system and was responsible for keeping all of them running kind of everywhere throughout the north. Um, so he was always big on technology. And we believe we got a, like a Commodore 64 when I was like three or something. It's a little before my knowledge of these things, but there was always sort of one in the basement to, to play around with. Um, I, yeah, I guess I had a, a personal computer starting from about 12, and um, there was, you know, dial-up internet, and I remember my first sort of experience with that was there was a saved password for the, the dial-up, and um, kind of I spent a few hours one day just pressing backspace and typing in the last character to figure out what it was and sort of reverse engineered the password like that. That's really cool. I, I had a similar experience uh, uh, with a computer early on when um, someone had given me the wrong sort of instructions for getting getting into the the program, right. uh, and uh, I had to kind of reverse engineer something that I knew was mistaken, but mm -hmm. f figure out what the principles were behind it. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and I did, and it was so satisfying, uh, even though you know it took me a couple hours, and I could have resolved it by just asking someone to give me the instructions again. Figuring it out was really uh, exciting. Um, Absolutely. And so uh, you made your way to the University of Waterloo in southern Ontario. Uh, for those listening, that's a that's a university that's um, in in Canada is sort of renowned for computer science and things like and, and tech generally. Um, what was that like going from uh, northern BC, like really northern BC, to uh, you know southern Ontario? It was weird. <laughs> um, I remember the like orientation the very first week of university and they had all the freshmen out on the lawn and I realized there were more freshmen there than my entire hometown. Just like mind blowing. Um, there's also this kind of strange thing because growing up in the North, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say resentment, but it's sort of in the right vein towards um, Ontario, which is sort of just where, where the power in the Canada in the, in the country lies. And so it was sort of weird to get there and get outside of my bubble and realize like, Oh, these people are actually pretty fantastic and not at all you know, the, the monsters I thought they were going to be. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. I think every, every Canadian who grew up west of Ontario knows exactly what, uh, or, like, as, or as I like to say, between the Pacific and Windsor, uh, <laughs> knows exactly what Sandy's talking about, just to um, a, just a very brief digression. Um, so the region where Toronto and places like Waterloo is, um, is actually on the same latitude as the southern half of South Dakota. Uh, Toronto itself is on a longitude slightly east of Miami, and this part of the country is referred to by itself as Central Canada. 
Uh, and so if you want to understand why, you know, there's, there's actually two or three NBA teams north of Toronto, but they call themselves We the North. It's because they're north of where the loyalists fled from at the time of the American Revolution. And within Canadian culture, that's still seen as the central part of the country, even as though like you can't get further south <laughs> than that. Uh, so anyway, there's, with that brief digression aside, um, I wanted to ask you a question uh, about that. So you studied, you had a really interesting degree. It was a five-year program uh, that was designed to get you to understand, you know, everything about how computers work. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So I'm not entirely sure I understand the question. Oh, okay. Um, so I think most people think of a computer science degree as something where you take a bunch of classes in this and you take a bunch of classes in that. But my understanding from what I read on your blog is that your program was a little bit more structured. It would it would sort of leave you with the ability if you were left on an island or whatever to actually construct a computer yourself. And you would know not just how to program, but you would actually know how you know the compiler works and you would know how the, the microchip works and things like is that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of phrasing it. Um, the the program was sort of structured by year. Sort of the first year you were talking about sort of the mathematics behind computers and sort of doing the logic and figuring out how do like analog circuits work. Um, at the same time, doing all the the underlying physics of how to push electrons through copper. Um, and sort of as as we went through the years, we slowly kind of built on top of the last year's um, instructions and classes. And so we got to the point where, you know, second year, you're sort of looking at digital circuit and how do those things work? And then, um, slowly building like, uh, CPU, um, and how does like memory work kind of from the physics up. And so I'd say through the, the first probably three years were essentially just that sort of bootstrapping the process of, um, how can we build these, these, you know, wonderful devices that we all take for granted these days. Um, one of the questions that I often get to ask people on this podcast, uh, because I interview so many people who are in software engineering is if you were starting out again now, and you were going to be pursuing a similar, you had intentions, the same intentions for a career that you did when you started your degree, uh, would you do a degree again? Or would you find um, some other way to train yourself? It's a good question. Um, so I was largely self-taught before I got to university. I'd been doing kind of programming on my own for about eight years. And when I showed up, I kind of thought I was like the hottest dude at this, right? Um, but what I realized was the people who had started later um, and had a more formal education kind of from the get-go, they rapidly caught up to me. Um, and so my eight years were enough to sort of get me through the first one or two at university. But by the end, um, I wasn't working as hard because I didn't realize I needed to. And the people who were working were significantly better. Um, and so I think um, if I were to do it again, I would do a degree. Uh, I might not do the same degree, but I, I think um, I think I would. Uh, I, I definitely see the value in things like um, like Hack Reactor or the boot camps uh, because there is a shortage of software engineers um, and it's a fantastic way to break into the industry. Um, but personally, I really enjoyed sort of the, the degree aspect of it. In your book, How These Things Work, um, right in the beginning of the preface, you have this great line that computer science has as much to do with computers as it does with snowmen. Uh, right. <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. Um, I think the, the we, there's this notion of computing, which I think is sort of fundamental to the universe. Um, it, it sort of pops up everywhere that you have um, systems with really any amount of power. There's, there's this old saying that sort of any 
any complicated system slowly evolves to be Lisp, but badly coded and with bugs. Um, and I, this is sort of true not only in computer systems, but sort of in organizations and um, you know, like physics itself, all seem to correspond to this idea that um, information can flow. And by setting up the right system, having information on one side, you can kind of push it through the system and get um, different information on the other side, which is this thing we call computing. Um, computers themselves are are an, a device that makes that easier, but that's not to say um, they're necessary. Like our first programming languages were invented back in the twenties, before like decades before we had computers. Uh, just one more question about education. I found on your blog that you um, you're pretty open about being preoccupied with uh, pre university math education, um, and you have strong opinions about that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think. Math is poorly taught. Um, it was probably about three years into university before I sort of realized what was this thing that people were trying to teach me. Um, when you're in grade school and even earlier, a lot of it's sort of this focus on numbers and they're like, why why do we add these things and sort of what's the answer to these computation problems? Um, and that's sort of valuable, I guess, for everyday life. Um, you know, if you're at the supermarket, that's sort of valuable. But and that's the reason that people push these things, is that they're sort of valuable. <laughs> the thing is, like, nobody cares. Nobody, you look at this and, like, people say proudly that they hate math. And that, that to me, is um, sort of misguided, I guess. I think that's due to bad teaching. Um, I, I don't think... Hmm. It's interesting, just, just to... But in um, there's, sure. there's actually coincidentally, I didn't. I just just I recall this um, just now. But it wasn't that long ago that there were actually a series of articles in the Toronto Globe and Mail newspaper about specifically the training that high school teachers in Ontario get around math. Right. Um, and there was a survey, and you could you could take it yourself. Done asking sort of basic questions, just solving basic mathematical problems, and. The, let's just say the, the pass rates were alarmingly low <laughs> for people who were in university. And it, it's, it is a really interesting issue. I mean, why is it that, you know, it's, it's okay to brag about being bad at understanding the basic relationships between things in the world? I think a big part of it is that the, the math that we teach isn't all that valuable. Um, it's sort of taught, I guess, historically, like these were the first things we found. But um, to me, I think we should teach math a lot more like we teach music, where you sort of dive in and you're not entirely sure what you're doing, but you get to have fun. So you look at like things like Sudoku, which are mathematics, but not presented as such. Um, it's sort of keeping in your mind all these constraints and trying to, um, to deduce more information given what you know. And so it's sort of this, this problem-solving process. I think that's what a lot of mathematics is, just unfortunately not the stuff that we're taught. Um, so I think maybe a... a the reason that people are, are sort of proud of this stuff is because they've correctly identified that it's not all that useful. And so I think we are doing them a disservice by presenting the least useful or at least the least interesting parts of mathematics to them. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting idea. I'm going to think a little bit more about that. I'd quite put it in those, those terms myself. I always thought that, you know, part of the problem was that, um, you know, there you are, you're six years old and all of a sudden it's like, here's your multiplication tables. Like here, here's, here's a red pen. And you're going right. to get a grade, and you've got ten minutes to finish. And it's like, oh my God, there's so much more going on than just math here. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not against you know pressure or anything like that, but or or marks, but like, you know, there's a lot more going on in, in a learning scenario like that when you're 
getting introduced to a subject than the subject itself. Um, so moving on to your uh, really interesting career, so what was your, what was your first job out of, out of uh, university? My first job out of university was um, working at Google on their uh, security and like um, IAM platform team. Um, essentially, it's the idea that like the ownership model for all of the Google resources of who owns what. And so, so our team was building the permissions behind like why you can read your email, but other people can't. And um, did you move to California to do that? To do that, I did. Yeah, um, I moved to San Francisco and spent three hours or so a day on the bus commuting down to Mountain View. My my thought was that I'd commute to go to work, but I probably wouldn't commute to go have fun. Um, it's just not sort of the person I am, and so I figured I'd have more fun living in the city and spending that time on the bus. And what was the uh, atmosphere like there? Uh, speaking of you know pressured environments, was uh, <laughs> I mean I've read a lot. I've read. I've interviewed people who worked for Google on this podcast before and, and I've, you know, sort of read the, the normal things in the news that people have read, but what was, what was your experience like? Were you sort of nervous about performing well or were you like, you know, this is, this is a breeze? Um, I was, I didn't get the imposter syndrome that everyone seems to. I certainly did for the interviews um, and there was a lot of interviews, my God. Um, but by the time I got there, um, Google has this weird hiring process where they make you sign a contract and then like 10 months later, they tell you what you'll be working on. And you don't really have a lot of say in that. Um, and so sort of between the time I had signed the contract and I had started the job, um, I was a little less than excited about working at Google. Um, and so I, I came in with a, what you might call a negative mindset, mostly because I had discovered other techniques that Google wasn't particularly excited about. Um, and so, yeah, so the imposter syndrome really never happened to me. And the reason I left, I think, is along those lines was I never really particularly felt inspired by the people around me. Uh, and um, that's that's really interesting. Uh, one, it, it, for some reason, it recalled to me that uh, the people I've interviewed who've worked at Google for this podcast before all struck me as being very sort of independent-minded. And they were what they liked about Google was that they could focus in on exactly what they wanted to do. Um, and there was no discussion of you know I never actually never heard anyone talk about their colleagues positively or negatively, which, which I now can sort of see was kind of a negative thing, perhaps, in its own way. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, like, the people I worked with were all fantastically skilled and, um, and brilliant, but I never got the vibe that, like, I, I was never sort of, you know, that, that feeling of inspiration where you just say, I want to know so much about you, and just, like, you sit down, you talk about something for, like, six hours. Yeah. That, that really never happened to me there. Um, and so... You know the the people were fantastic, I, but I think we just didn't really click. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, and uh, did you move on from there to Facebook? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I, I did an internship at Facebook. Oh, so um, I got the order wrong. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so yeah, so I did an internship at Facebook um, as a while well, I was in university and I was working there on the growth team. And uh, you wrote about accidentally making them a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so. My, my intern project was to make friending go up by 5%, um, which is sort of hard because, you know, it's the number of times people press, like, the add friend button, which is not really a thing you can influence uh, by any traditional means. You can't just say, everybody needs to make 5% more friends. Um, and so my thoughts were sort of what happens if we play with the, the advertising revenue uh, that Facebook pays to itself in order to, like, advertise its own things. Um, so we, we thought about, like, what would happen if um, when the little ad comes up saying, like, you might know these people. At the time, that would come up several times a day with all the same people. And we realized, oh, maybe that's 
not particularly valuable. Um, if they didn't click on it once, they're probably not going to click on it two or three times. Um, and so we, we did this and, um, I was running a lot of experiments trying different algorithms for this and none of them were working. Uh, some of them were like giving us negative percentage of friend increases and, um, just nothing was working. And I was like super stressed cause I really wanted the job and my, my internship was almost over. And I, I realized like one of them, we'd increased, um, the revenue of the company by like 1%, which sounds sort of small. And I had kind of written off, except when you realize that, you know, Facebook is huge. Uh, that's actually quite a huge amount of money. Yeah, yeah. So I was unsuccessful in my friend angle, but I made them a lot of money, and I guess they were happy about that. And how was it that what you did drove up revenue? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, that's, I guess why I call it an accident. Um, I think what was happening was that they were just overbidding a lot of times on things that weren't paying off. And so we, we tweaked the algorithm to be, I think, exponentially dropping off for the same people. And so just, you know, you multiply three times a day by, I guess it's not really multiplication, but you, you, you understand what I mean? Like yeah, you're just yeah. showing so few ads that we, we were selling a lot more. That's really, that's really interesting. And so, and so, uh, eventually you decided to retire, uh, at the age of 27. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that journey. Sure. Um, at the time I was working in the financial tech market, uh, with some of the most brilliant people I knew, but, um, finance tech was never all that exciting to me. And so after a few years, I was just sort of sick and tired of being in the Bay. And I was, I realized I was working to make money that I didn't really need to get experience that I didn't really need. Um, sort of hating my time there. And so I realized like, what's the point? The only thing kind of keeping me there was the fear of the unknown. So I decided, um, it's time to take matters into my own hands. And I, I quit my job and I, um, subsequently got deported from the U S because I was there on a work visa. I, I found myself just with like, what are you going to do? Right. Um, so I decided, um, to keep my, my runway long. I was going to move to Eastern Europe, uh, which was a place I'd always sort of promised myself I'd go when I retired. I was expecting it to be much longer down the road, but, um, that sort of happened. So I ended up in Lithuania, just doing my own thing without really any plans, without any, income, um, without really any friends there, just sort of into the, into the wild, I guess. And you, you were in Vilnius, I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, I've actually got a specific question. Did you ever pop over into Belarus? Uh, I was there sort of, um, not intentionally. I was there for a layover when I realized my flight had gone missing and I didn't have a visa and I was struck in Belarus. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. I've just, uh, I've never interviewed anyone for the podcast who's been to Belarus before. Um, okay. but, uh, but then, uh, so, so what was it like living in Vilnius, not knowing anybody to be, to begin with? I mean, how did you make friends? Yeah. Uh, I, I sort of made friends with the, the tourism girls. They, they did like daily walks and they'd tell you about the city. And after a few of those that I went on, um, I was meeting people there and ended up meeting the, the tour guides who are all fantastic people and all spoke English much better than sort of everyone else. Um, which was great cause I didn't speak any Lithuanian. Um, so yeah, sort of, they, they slowly introduced me to, um, the town, but I, I found it was socially quite difficult to meet people outside of that. Part of it was the language barrier and part of it was a culture barrier, which I was not expecting. And were you, uh, taking some time to think about the next project to work on or were you working on projects at all? I've got this bad streak of just sort of starting a million projects and then never really finishing any of them. And so that was sort of what I was doing. Um, I probably had like 14 projects on the go sort of because 
I had no nothing else to spend time on. I had no job, and I had, didn't have a huge social circle, and I was in a weird country. And so I was just like, I'm going to build things. <laughs> uh, the, the goal was not really to, to build anything in particular. It was just sort of keep myself busy and to keep learning things. Um, and that's what accidentally turned into this book. Yeah, I've got, I've got some questions to ask you about that uh, in just a minute. But I am, I'm also curious about how you ended up uh, in Ottawa. Yeah. Um, so part of the, the charm of the University of Waterloo is they have these internships, which happen every four months. And so you spend four months kind of at school and then four months working somewhere. And um, it's great if, in terms of work experience, but it's not so good in terms of like staying in one place. And so by the time I'd gone to Lithuania, I realized um, I had moved something like 19 times in the last eight years. Uh, and I, I realized I wasn't particularly happy in Vilnius after about six months. Um, I wasn't really settling in. My visa was for two years. And I realized by the time two years rolled around, probably I'd just be getting comfortable with the place. And that didn't seem like a very good investment. Um, so I thought, I'm going to move I'm going to leave and I need to go somewhere, but there was nowhere in particular to go. Um, all of my friends have sort of gone across the world and there's not a particularly big um, group of them anywhere. My parents have left their hometown and even if they hadn't, I probably wouldn't go back. And so I was sort of left with this, this open field of where to live. Um, the only thing I really wanted was a place I could stay. Um, and so that meant not having to deal with visas, which sort of, you know, restricts me to Canada. Um, and then um, Ottawa sort of just it happened accidentally. Honestly, uh, I had a friend who was visiting and she said, I sh we should meet here. And so we did. And then she left and I didn't. And I figured this is as good a place as any to be. And so I just stuck around. Yeah, I've got, I've got uh, yeah, one, one last question on that topic. Um, one of the things, you know, there's, I've, I've moved around a fair amount in my life. Um, I had a, a somewhat similar experience uh, where I was working in uh, investment banking in London and making a fair amount of money doing a kind of high-level job and just realized I didn't love it. Uh, although, like, aspects of it were very exciting, uh, I didn't love it, and it was stupid to work 120 hours a week on something I didn't love doing. Uh, and so I just left and moved to Montreal and sort of drank beer and wrote a novel for, right. for a year. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I did, I did a lot of other things, too, but, you know, none kind of professional. Um, and one thing it took me a lot longer than it should have to realize was not that, you know, moving from one place to another is exciting to me, but that leaving places behind is easy for me. And I, it, was, it was just so natural to me to be able to just pick up sticks and move that I never realized this is actually something that not, not everybody feels that way to a lot of people. In fact, I, I, a friend of mine once told me that he saw a survey that, you know, actually the hardest thing that people often have to fa will say that they ever faced in their lives was moving, even, you know, sort of worse than divorce and things like that. Um, is that something that you identify with? Are you? Is it easy for you to leave places? That strongly resonates with me. Yes, um, it is easy to me, uh, easy for me to leave, and and sort of that comes with its own problems. Where I, I would realize like I'd be in maybe a relationship I wasn't particularly happy with, and instead of like going through the issue of like dealing with it, I just say, oh, well, I'm leaving anyway. I can stick it out for a few weeks, uh, and that that was a particularly healthy. Um, and sort of, I guess that's that's been my mantra for the last couple of years was like, um, there was never really a sense of permanence anywhere. And so I would be sort of afraid to put down roots. And so I'm not sure if it was easy to leave because I wasn't putting down roots or, you know, if the causality went the other direction. Um, but yeah, that, that strongly re resonates. 
Yeah, thanks, thanks for thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. It's uh, not now, like I said, not every not everybody's like that, and it's it's a, it's questionable whether it's a superpower or or not. Yeah, um, I think it just is, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, to be honest, so do I. But there you go. Uh, um, uh, so moving on to the subject of your book, imagine you're you were speaking to someone who doesn't know anything about uh, computers. How would you explain to them what Haskell is? Sure. I think there's this common um, perception of programming as sort of being like a recipe where you say, you know, you're going to throw some things in the bowl and stir it. And then, you know, I don't know, I'm not much of a baker, but um, the the idea is more um, sort of like, how do you do something and not maybe less focus on what are you trying to accomplish? Um, And so that's sort of the way that that programming exists um, in the vast majority throughout history and throughout the industry today. Um, Haskell is um, a member of these languages called functional programming, which sort of take the approach of what are you trying to do rather than how should you do it? Um, The idea being, if you can specify quite clearly what are you trying to do, then we can just sort of let the computer deal with the the how. Um, And this, this turns out to be a fantastic way, I think, of thinking about programming because all of a sudden you feel a little less like a code monkey and more of um, like you're actually dealing with ideas all of a sudden. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess that leads probably naturally into my, ne- my next question, which is, what's type-level programming? <laughs> um, sure, yeah. And so um, if you're familiar with programming, you've probably heard of types, which are sort of um, the, the reference class of what you're working with. And so you might have a type, which is number, and then you have values, which are like one, which is a number. And I feel like a lot of people today sort of are of the opinion that types just get in the way. They say, I don't want to deal with these things, so I'll just say there will be no types anywhere. And this um, this works. You know, the world runs, and most of it is sort of based on these ideas. But it turns out that types are sort of a good way of checking to make sure you know what you're talking about and making sure the thing you're you're trying to do makes sense. Uh, so in the, the cooking analogy, like, maybe you don't want to throw, like, an orange into the oven or something just yeah. by itself. It's, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm probably going to ask this the wrong way, but uh, hopefully I can sort of get my point across. But there's, sure. there's something about, as I was researching for this interview, there seems to be something, there is something particularly about vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that seems to be at stake in type level programming. Um, sure, yeah. And, and if, if, if I understand it correctly, it's partly like if you don't have an understanding of what is being accomplished and you're just sort of, as you say, being a code monkey, just like, you know, going to Stack Overflow and figuring out what to paste in here to, to do this thing. If you don't have an awareness of, of actually what's going on, what's what's trying to be, what's being achieved, what categories of action are being undertaken here, uh, then you can leave yourself vulnerable to, uh, well, hacks and security yeah. leaks and things like that. Um, yes, this is certainly true. Um, I, I think this is sort of the, the value of type-level programming, um, which I guess just to clarify is sort of, designing your types in a way that um, a computer can validate and make sure that what you're doing is sane um, to a, a much stronger degree than it's sort of done in the industry today. And so this is definitely a huge area of um, kind of implementation for type level stuff of saying, I've got this company that's I don't know, on the blockchain. We're doing things that are, you know, multiple millions of dollars per second. It's like, that's a very expensive mistake. If you're going to, if you've got a bug there that crashes your system, like, you know, you might be throwing money away. And so sort of the value of type level programming is 
you can kind of prove properties about your program that are validated by the computer. And so the idea is um, you want to just say, here's my problem and make sure that the solution you come up with is actually solving the problem as in a way and it's that's verified. And uh, this involves an interaction with the mysterious compiler. Could you? <laughs> I know that like 90% of people listening to this know what a compiler is, but if you could explain a little bit about, about that, what that does, because I think to a lot of people, it's, it's a bit of a black box. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the, the way we interact with um, computers as humans, at least um, if we're creating software, is uh, through the, the use of software, like programming languages. And programming languages don't really exist in this, uh, they, they sort of exist only in terms of an implementation. And so what we provide as a, as a programming language is actually just text that gets accepted by a computer program. The computer program is the compiler. And so the, the compiler is what takes uh, ideas from humans and turns it into things that run on computers. Yeah, it's uh, instructions for the machine that's actually going to be doing the work. But then, right. that, but that machine itself has to have some, like, built-in way of interpreting the text that we feed into it. Exactly, yeah. And then if you understand the built-in way that it sort of accepts these instructions, then you can operate at a higher level with respect to things like, well, I guess, I mean, vulnerabilities. Sorry, can you repeat that? Uh, yeah, I, actually, probably I can't. <laughs> uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, if, you, if you really understand how your instructions are being interpreted, um, then you can create instructions that are more likely to do something that's verified and secure. Yeah, absolutely. The sort of way I look at it is um, the the types are sort of mathematical proofs. And you say, uh, if I solve the problem in this way, then we're guaranteed to not have a vulnerability, we're guaranteed to not crash, we're guaranteed to not lose money, or, you know, what have you. Um, and so... That, that's sort of a formal specification that um, any code you then write is checked against to make sure that the code you're writing accomplishes the goals that you are, want to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, thanks thanks for that. That's actually exactly what I was trying to get at is like, how is it that sort of you can actually have a guarantee uh, uh, of that kind? Um, my last question on that subject is uh, if you could talk a little bit about what it means for something to be type safe. Certainly, yeah. Um, the idea of type safety is just making sure that you're not doing anything stupid. Um, for example, if you have, like, you can you can sort of, like, compare two colors, and they're, like, they're, they're similar, so there's some notion of similarity between them, but there's not really a notion of, like, multiplying them or, you know, um, turning them on or something like that, even though you can turn on the light switch. And so sort of the, the class of things that we're talking about uh, limits the things we can do. And so uh, type safety is just making sure that you're, you're not trying to, to use some idea in the wrong domain. Oh, thanks for that. That actually really clarified something for me that I, that I wasn't clear in my head. That's really, that's really great. Um, uh, and who's the, I guess my last question about the book is who's, who's the audience for this? Yeah, that's, um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's sort of art, uh, aimed at uh, an audience of people who, are intermediate Hasklers to professional Hasklers, um, of whom there are not really any. There's maybe five companies in the world who write Haskell. And so um, it's it's a small market on that front, but there's this huge community of people who who would like to be doing these things, um, who've sort of found this language and it's kind of spoken to them in some way. And they would love to be doing this professionally, but the industry keeps saying, oh, it's hard to hire these jobs, so we're not going to do it. And so there's this weird catch-22. Um, more specifically... 
um, the book is sort of aimed at people who, who write code and then feel uneasy about it afterwards when they say, I know that this thing can crash if, you know, n equals four. And we can write some tests to make sure that's not the case, but like, what if we didn't write enough? What if we, would, what if we forgot to write a test somewhere? Um, and sort of the people who lose sleep at night saying, maybe my code isn't as, as robust as I think it might be. So that's sort of the audience, I guess. Yeah, for, it sounds like for people who are working on the kinds of things where if a mistake is made, the consequences can be dire. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of software is sort of falls into that category, even though we, we don't think so. Um, you know, the reason like most phone apps are kind of crap is because they get they get written really quickly and they people miss all these these weird cases. Um, and so it's it's you know, there is the matter of life and death, but it's also just sort of a matter of taking, I guess, pride in what you do. And like, say, if you want to build something, you want to make sure it's going to do what it does or what it's supposed to do. Um, and so uh, there is definitely this this aspect of kind of making sure that it's that it's applicable in all the places it needs to be. But I, I would like to see a world in which it's sort of everywhere. Yeah, that I, I got to say, I, I completely agree with that. I have a particular hobby horse, which is um, the way, and this, this is like just actually in, at the design level, where people will design things for a kind of what they consider to be a delightful experience. Uh, and one convention is hiding information in order to make the experience more delightful. Right. And, you know, or, or, or show you things like there's this one payment service provider that we use that I like to bring up and not name because uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're very good in many ways. But one thing they started, they did a redesign not too long ago and they started show, when you go to pay, someone they started showing you just random circle faces from people you've paid before and it's like the, the, there's two things i would say about those things first of all no one would ever ever design that in a payments app who'd ever been in a situation where if they sent money to the wrong person there was no more to go to in the bank if right. you know what i mean um and another example i like to give is i will name it specifically gmail if you go at, like in chrome and you try to send an email it will actually not show you the email address It'll just show right. the name of the account and it'll hide both the to and the from fields uh, and just show you a name in a little kind of bar. Right. Uh, so you don't know if that's what email address that's associated with. You don't know if it's the from and you don't know if, if it's the to and you have no information about about either of those really. And the way but I like it's it, minimal. So it, that's it's very, great, isn't, right? isn't, 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 <laughs> yeah, isn't that a delightful experience? And the way I like to put it is like, if you've ever been in a job where if you sent an email to the wrong person, billions of dollars or jail were at stake. You would never design something like that. It, like the, the analogy, I think I used it recently is like a glass hammer, you know, mm -hmm. what, a, what a beautiful thing uh, and com actually completely useless. Uh, so sorry, sorry, sorry for my little rant there, but I, I completely agree with you that, you know, it's, we all have this experience of hearing about these huge leaks and, you know, um, important government websites that, you know, fail right out of the, out of the wind, like as soon as they're launched and it does seem like there's a software is becoming more and more important in our world as it's eating everything up everything's based on software and you know there we're still going through i think a cultural period where we're just kind of being cowboys about so much. yeah it what's particularly frustrating to me is like the technology to not have these problems exists and it has existed for 30 years and just like the industry is just behind and people are you know they sort of dismiss things without, uh, I think, thinking about them too much. They say, oh, this is new and different. And so um, it's not worth thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, uh, moving on to the last part of the interview, I wanted to talk to you about the, the process for making your book. Um, you didn't just write a book in stealth mode and then, you know, dump it on the public. You actually sort of tested your idea first, and I was in a couple of different ways. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure, yeah. Um, so, I was bored in Lithuania, and I had a project. Um, <laughs> so, I, I was sort of had this idea to write a book on type-level programming, and um, I spent a few weeks on it and my friend kind of bullied me into publishing it. Um, so I published this 37 page document that was you know very rough and had a lot of swear words in it and just was like clearly unfinished, but um, I shared it around and people like loved it for some reason. Um, there was clearly a demand for this somehow. Um, like I, I would not have bet money on it before and it was just sort of a, a project of love. Um, but yeah, so um, I set up a Patreon for that because people said they'd pay me money and I, had no income. So I figured it was probably the right thing to do. Um, and sort of just, I decided I was going to publish a chapter every week, um, get feedback on it and sort of put my email everywhere to see if anyone had any comments to just let me know. And I want to write the best book I could. And the only way to do that, I think is to solicit feedback. It's really interesting. We've had people, um, do Kickstarter before for, for lean pub books. Uh, but I think you're the first person to use Patreon. And so was that based on, was, did that involve a commitment from you for sort of regular output of new material? Certainly. Yeah. Um, I was, I was definitely motivated to work on this because all of a sudden people were paying me money, whether or not I did anything. And that was feeling a lot like fraud if I wasn't going to do anything. Um, I'm sure, you know, I probably would have gotten away with it if I had wanted to, but you know, I didn't. And so just having people like have their money on the line, putting their money where their mouth was, was so, so powerful of a motivating force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, with lean pub, did you, did you publish the book in progress on lean pub or was it done by the time you brought it to us? Oh no, it was, um, definitely published sort of on the go uh, on lean pub. Yeah. And was getting, uh, feedback from people during that process, an important part of, of what, of how the book ended up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I offered a, a tier on Patreon for like anyone who gave me $5 a month or something would get access, early access to the book. I didn't realize that LeanPub also let you sell the book as it went. And so I was sort of like accidentally getting two revenue streams that were sort of cannibalizing one another. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so uh, I put this up on LeanPub just because it seemed like the easiest place to, to do this. Um, and then people started buying it and started sending me emails saying, hey, there's a typo. Hey, there's a bug. Hey, you know, this is terribly written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting. That's, um, that's an experience uh, quite a few people have uh, talked about and how kind of... It's, it's funny how um, surprised people often are at the generosity that readers have and the, the, the genuine enjoyment that they have when they like, find a, something as basic as a typo and they can contact you and then see it corrected in the next version. People just love interacting that way. Absolutely. And I think that was the, the thing that sort of kept me the most, um, that took me by the most surprise was just this idea that like people were excited sort of for the first time in my life about something I was working on. And it was super easy to like interact with them and just say, Hey, here it is. You know, I would love to hear from you. And people did. And your, your book is in our, um, Bring your own book workflow, which means that you actually use your own uh, workflow to create the the ebook files, and then you just upload them to LeanPub. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your process was. You've got PDF and EPUB uh, files, if I'm yeah. correct. I'm so happy you asked about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I had written my original document in LaTeX, uh, which is sort of academic typesetting software from the 70s. It's uh, still used by most academics today, um, and it, it's sort of notable for putting out pretty good-looking things without a lot of effort. Um, and so this was this is what I knew from my days in university, and I figured this was the right tool for the job. So I, I put this together. Um, as I worked through the project further and further, though, I realized this maybe wasn't the right tool. For example, I wanted to put little snippets of code into the book, um, but I also wanted to make sure that those snippets were right. And so they had to be in a wider context, but then, you know, there's this problem of do I copy and paste it into the book, or, like, how do I make sure that all the code is up to date. Um, so it involved like writing a lot of tools to sort of make, kind of keep everything up to date. Um, and then sort of as I went further and further down this rabbit hole, you know, it more or less works and the book looks good. And so I did that and then realized afterwards, oh, I need a, an ebook version of this. But LaTeX doesn't create um, ebooks. And so there are sort of tools that will, you know, take a PDF and turn it into an ebook, but they sort of miss the point, I think because they don't really capture the meaning of what are you trying to do. They capture the how, which is sort of, I guess, mm-hmm. my hobby horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, so I realized I wrote this like like 400-line shell script that would slowly take pieces of the LaTeX and turn them into something that was more amenable for, um, for the ebook. And this thing was just like a nightmare to run and um, sort of was the price I paid for not using the right tools. Uh, I don't think those tools exist currently. And um, I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot of potential for a product that sort of is writing documents based on what do they mean um, rather than what they are. And to give you an example of that, um, my book has sort of like exercises and solutions. And for my peace of mind, I want to write those things beside each other. Um, so you can clearly see the exercise and the solution to it. Uh, but in the book, like, the solution probably shouldn't be beside that thing. And so trying to, like, write, trying to figure out how to make that happen in this published document, I was saying, my exercise are here, but the solution is at the back of the book. Uh, that thing, like, that took me two days. So, like, that shouldn't be so hard. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of solve that problem by not dealing with it. They just say, I'll copy and paste, I'll put it in the back. And then you've lost this sort of um, relationship between the two that you can kind of exploit later. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of value to be had there if someone's looking to do it. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, uh, it's always uh, good for us to hear about people's experiences and, and their preferences because, you know, we're everybody's different. Everybody's got their own way into writing a book. And people who are particularly... Uh, technically, let's say technically sophisticated, <laughs> often come up with very sophisticated solutions. Uh, right. And as it's pretty common to hear, you know, the story of like, it took me a while, but I finally got there building the thing that I want. And for us, that's, you know, gold, gold to hear about. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, uh, my last question that I always like to ask on this podcast is, if there was one thing we could build for you on LeanPub, or one thing we could fix, um, is there anything you can think of? Um, I think the platform is pretty fantastic, actually. Um, I don't know about building any particular tools, but uh, something I would like to see is it's hard to find things in the menus Mm. and in the author dashboards. Like I said, I want to update the progress of my book. And a lot of times it would take me like 15 minutes to find that because there's so many options and it was never sort of where I expected it to be. Um, I think recently you guys have redone a lot of the menus, and so now my previous knowledge ha- has not carried over again. So. 
Yeah, th- thanks a lot for that. That's something we're always trying to improve. I mean, it, it is it's it's a really interesting challenge. Like you know, because actually LeanPub over the years has it, we we're, we've got a lot of features and options, uh, and knowing where to put things, like how do you mark the progress? Like my book is eighty percent done. Right. It's actually an interesting question because should it be in the book info? Well, yeah, that's it. Seems like it should, but actually the progress number only shows up in one place, and that's on your book's landing page. Right. And so, you know, deciding should it be in the book info or should it be where you set what's on your landing page? We currently have it where you set what's on your landing page. But, it, you know, of course, these are things that could also appear in more than one place. Uh, but, right. that, you know, that's that's got its own problems. But uh, but thanks very much for that. Yes, we really we did just redo our author nav, as we call it. Um, and it should make it should make finding the pages where you can do things a lot easier. Cool. Uh, but still knowing like what's on that page is that that's 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 the hard part so uh thanks thanks very much for that and uh thanks very much for taking the time to do this uh and for being so forthcoming uh, i really appreciate that we covered a lot of interesting ground um, absolutely thanks yeah. for having me oh thanks very much and uh yes thanks for being a lean pub author yeah great cheers thanks for the the platform it's fantastic and i would recommend it so thanks Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on iTunes and rate us as well. And please uh, consider signing up as an author on LeanPub. We welcome everyone who's got interesting things to say and to teach, because, of course, LeanPub isn't just a platform for making books. It's also a platform for making courses. See you next time.